Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting and joined by Peter Martin for the next hour to take your Bible questions. If you'd like to send them to us, feel free to email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like that spelled out for you, you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be sent to where you can not only engage with us face-to-face, but at the bottom of the screen we'll provide a banner that will give you the email address for future use and intended to, of course, receive your Bible questions. If you'd like to join us on social media, the same purpose will be fulfilled on Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and YouTube is a reason for hope. However, since we can't predict or determine why we are taken down from those platforms. We want to make sure you first and foremost join us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform yet. Again, YouTube is a reason for hope. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, but our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you join us there, we'll be able to engage with you and, of course, not be interrupted. And if the broadcast isn't taking place live from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S., from where you're watching, we'll have previous broadcasts playing automatically, and the email address will be spelled there as well. You can use that email address again for sending us sincere Bible questions. Sincere means you want to hear the answer, you're not just talking, which is an allusion to what we're going to start with here in a minute. The second is, of course, that it is about the Bible, the substance of the question, and the answer are both on that topic, and of course that you get Jeopardy points for answering your question in the form of a question, except reverse. We will answer your question if it is in fact asked in the form of one. Of course, we want to give the most time as possible to your questions, but before we dare, uh, let's take a moment to pray, make sure God speaks more than we do. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word among your people, and I pray would be in your spirit as well. We're thankful that we relate to you on the basis of mercy and that you minister to us accordingly. As your word is shared here, I pray you would give Peter and I wisdom as well as grace in communicating your words as well as your heart. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so continuing from a unfortunately long-delayed session of lessons we've uh, been discussing regarding rhetoric. Rhetoric is, of course, the art of communication and, of course, the ability to communicate effectively. This, of course, involves a number of factors that we've been trying to inform you about, not just in regards to spotting logical fallacies, but also being aware of the ways that people, maybe even unintentionally, ourselves included, miscommunicate or even miss the point of communication. Now, when we're talking about today's topic, which will be filibustering, it's mostly going to be on the receiving end as far as the one who's listening to someone else. That was our first lesson in rhetoric, is not just to talk but to listen. But what's interesting is that when you find yourself listening and listening and listening some more, and you wonder, A, where is all the time gone, and B, almost as if this speech was intended to use up said time, 
we feel that we haven't gotten anywhere. The purpose of rhetoric, sound communication, has failed. So what we want to equip you all for in this lesson is how to not only spot but counter filibustering. Now, filibustering isn't necessarily a logical fallacy. There will be fallacies that will accompany them. But what it's going to mostly involve is just talking for talking's sake for a number of reasons. We talked earlier this week of uh, Dr. Phil Session, who in order to prevent his guest from voicing any sort of message that would go against his narrative, he talked slowly and passively and put himself in a position where if there was any interruption for the time he himself was wasting, he would then victimize himself and say, if you'd stop interrupting me, and then go on to speak as if he was treebeard from Lord of the Rings. So the taking up deliberately of time to either use up what time you may have or in other situations to put yourself in a situation where, as we say before the broadcast, you don't even remember what was being talked about. It is meant, and this is the intent, this is the issue, to deceive through the taking up or the wasting of time. Which is what actually distinguishes this one from the other ones we have talked about. So the other ones we've talked about, uh, whether they be the ad hominem fallacy or any of these others that we've gone over during our rhetoric lessons, a lot of these could be done accidentally. You're not, you're not really aware that you are doing them. It just kind of comes out by instinct. This one is intentional. Yeah, this one, you can't accidentally do this. You're being slimy. Right, <laughs> exactly. Um, so as Sean said, it, the intent is either to waste time or it is to intentionally confuse the person that you are talking to from forgetting their original point. Uh, and you could do this by either talking slowly or utilizing a lot of information that's not even relevant to the conversation. Uh, I'm going to give you an example of that in one second. But utilizing information that's not really relevant, utilizing a lot of allusions to big words and things that you are familiar with to draw attention away from what you aren't very familiar with. And if you want to see this, a master class on this, just watch the White House press secretary do their job. It doesn't matter which one. Could be the current one, could be the one that was under Donald Trump, anyone you want. This is literally their job. It's <laughs> to filibuster, to distract, to diffuse, to make the reporter themselves, whose job it is to get information from them, to forget what the heck they were even talking about, right? To, to distract from what I don't want to talk about by moving the conversation to an area that has no relevance, right? So as Sean said, it's a, it's a type of red herring almost, right? Where red herring is, I'm bringing up facts that, again, aren't very relevant to the topic at hand in order to distract you from what I'm really trying to do, which is to redirect the conversation to a place where I feel more comfortable and I could dominate you. Right. Now, if you see this in interpersonal relationships, it's that you're in an abusive relationship, right? So this this is a, uh, a, a very strong manipulation tactic. If you find yourself trying to have conversations with the person that you care about and they are constantly redirecting the conversations, going into long uh, tangents that have nothing to do with what you're pointing out in them, if every single time you try to point out something that they're doing wrong, they redirect to you or they talk about something totally unrelated and they just go on and on and on. You're like, I think that went well. I'm not sure. I don't remember what we were talking about, right? If you find yourself saying that a lot, this is happening to you. So, And note, it doesn't mean you're not allowed to ramble or have banter, <laughs> but if you address something serious and right. in order to answer it, they take up a lot of time and make, to quote the famous play, much ado about <clears throat> nothing, you're seeing this at work. Yeah. So this is an article came out this week. 
Uh, and we live in this great time in American history where I could find an article any day of the week I want that does this fallacy. Uh, but this is a separating sports by sex doesn't make any sense by Maggie Mertens. And this is on the Atlantic. So uh, that might sound odd to you because you're like, well, wait, the thing that human beings have been doing since the dawn of sports doesn't make any sense. So all human beings until the last five minutes were just wrong and men and women are actually completely comparable when it comes to athletic ability. Well, let's hear her reasoning. Okay. So she made the claim. First rule rhetoric. Listen. So hopefully she has a reason for making this claim. Decades of research have shown that sex is far more complex than we may think. And though sex differences in sports show advantages for men, researchers today still don't know how much of this attributes to biological differences versus the lack of support provided to women athletes to reach their highest potential. Science is increasingly showing how sex is dynamic. It has multiple aspects and also shifts, for example. Social experiences can actually change levels of sex-related hormones like testosterone in our bodies in a second-to-second and month-to-month way. Uh, Sorry, Van Anders, the research chair in the Social Neuroendocrinology at Queen's University in Ontario told me by email. She said that this is complexity means it doesn't make sense to separate sex uh, by sport. In I mean, sport by sex. Okay, now in we're back to, to the topic again. Yeah. Thank goodness. Okay, what else should she say? Uh, in order to protect women athletes from getting hurt. If safety was a concern and there was evidence to select cur- uh, certain bodily characteristics to base safety cutoffs, then you would see, say, shorter men excluded from, and then she goes on from there. So if you notice, this whole thing is this, not fallacy, but this rhetoric technique, the slimy technique of redirection, re- redirecting and filibustering, where if you really listen to the content, she really hasn't said anything of substance. All she said is, well, this topic is much more complicated than we thought. And what is the topic? Women in sports or gender playing a role in sports not making any sense. Then goes on to basically spend two paragraphs saying that we don't have any sense to gender and therefore we should (coughs) demonize and segregate people on the basis of physical ability which is the opposite of what you're trying to prove, and then segues into a private conversation they had with someone else who disagrees with them. Who's a neuroendocrinologist, right? (laughs) This is not a biologist. This is not a sports therapist. This is someone who literally deals with the mind, right? But I had a lot of syllables. Right. (laughs) And the idea is that maybe men compete at a higher level than women because women haven't received enough affirmation. They don't believe they can, so they don't, right? Hypothetical, not actually an example, right? okay. <laughs> right, and so it, this is, a, again, it's a very good example of someone just redirecting, filibustering, going off on tangents, things like that. So the good news about this one is, like I said, it's everywhere. It's very easy to find examples of this all over the place. It is literally how reporters and how the news is basically run today, but... How do we respond to this? So it's a simple problem with an equally, actually, simple solution. How, how do you respond to someone who is clearly filibustering? Well, like we said, the two issues we're going to be addressing, how to spot it and how to deal with it. How you deal with it is actually first to spot it, because if you know you're in quicksand, the first thing to do is to understand that fact. If you continue walking and realize, why am I getting shorter? That's because you aren't aware of there being a problem. If you start to notice that either the topic has not been addressed or isn't being addressed for a prolonged length of time, you see me, if you're listening on Reach Radio, you weren't graced with it, but just kind of looking around waiting for sports to come up and this gender presence within it, you can simply ask a question. 
okay, but what does that have to do with what we're talking about? You, all you have to do is point out that the topic that's being discussed isn't being discussed. <laughs> and just like identifying the fact that you're being filibustered, the moment that you point that out, the jig is up. And they'll have to do either one of two things, apologize, which is rare, or they'll continue to filibuster. And you can keep employing this counter. Great, but what does that have to do with blank? Great, but what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Great, but what does that have to do with what we're being here? And this for? is actually this is a very difficult thing. If you ever watch debates, uh, especially Christian versus atheist debates or Christian versus Muslims debates, this technique is utilized a lot, which in, is in why debates. they have set time limits. That's right. And when you're watching debates, sometimes you can get confused, and sometimes you be uh, what the other person will say is they'll be like, "You didn't respond to any of my claims that I made just a little bit ago." Well, yeah, because none of your claims had anything to do with the topic of debate, right? But they'll claim victory over the debate, the person they're debating because they didn't address any of their claims that have nothing to do with the topic that they were debating, uh, which leads to one of my favorite Proverbs, and I quote it often. So in Proverbs chapter 26, Solomon lays out for us what we could call a no-win situation, right? So there are instances in which you just can't win, right? So this is Proverbs 26, verse 4, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So if you have someone filibustering, coming up with really complicated, uh, nonsensical things that have nothing to do with what you're talking about, and you keep trying to redirect them to the actual point of contention, understand, if you try to go along with this person and their crazy spider webbing, different topics that they're shotgunning at you, you're going to get lost. You're going to be like them, right? They now own the conversation. They now own you, and they're going to win, right? He who dictates the terms of an engagement will always win. So if you go along with them, you will become like them, and they will beat you. But if you don't answer them according to their folly, if you don't follow around their, their weird, nonsensical train of thought, they will be right in their own eyes. They will think that they have won. That's okay. Sometimes it's better to just let people think, that they have won. So again, if you watch the, uh, it wasn't really a debate, but the, the, the show where Lila Rose was on with Dr. Phil, you'll notice she does this. Lila Rose is an amazing woman. She has a lot of grace <laughs> within her public appearances. I don't know how she keeps her cool in a lot of these uh, circumstances, but she's very, very good at it. You'll notice that she does exactly what Sean says. She keeps redirecting Dr. Phil, not just to his weird claims, but to the facts, right? Actually, 96% of scientists have said that life begins at conception. And Dr. Phil goes off into weird tangents. She keeps bringing him back to the point. And eventually, she just lets him finish. She lets him be right in his own eyes because there's no sense in continuing to bang your head against the wall when the other person is clearly not into it. So and this is important. And you're deliberately put in a crowd position where everyone's going to disagree with you anyway. Yeah, exactly. So part of rhetoric, part of learning how to dialogue with people is actually... Part of it is learning when to stop, right? Learning when to say, like, I'm not really getting anywhere. There's really nothing coming out of this. I'm going to stop dialoguing with this person because it's just not providing anything, right? So once again, we can't just cut people off because we think that they're being uh, rude or uh, they're not communicating with us the way that we would like. We should give them a chance, but there is a limit to the graciousness you should provide. 
people like this, people who employ the filibustering tactic, they will take up as much of your time as you, you will let, let them, them. <laughs> right? And that could be an awful lot because a lot of these people love to hear the sound of their own voice. So if you engage with them, they're very good at this and it will just waste all of your time. And we'll leave you with this note again in the book of Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 11. This is a good character check to prevent you from becoming the kind of filibuster we want to avoid. Don't be a fill. Uh, <laughs> that, that has layers to it. A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. The goal of a conversation isn't to talk the most, it's to talk with the most meaning. If you can communicate more with less, then you're all the better for it. So following our own advice, we will end on that note and look forward to our next rhetoric lesson. But let us know if you have questions about that, and we'll continue next week with more. Now, going out to your questions, uh, we were sent along a few questions by email, by text, and live. We want to give those live priority. Uh, first, with Ezekiel, speaking of wasting time, how do we make sure we don't uh, have the wood, hay, and stubble as opposed to precious uh, stones and jewels and so forth in our crowns? And also referencing the parable of the wicked and lazy servant, would that apply to us today? Thanks. Well, to the latter Ezekiel, yes, it is not a good thing to be lazy. In fact, we talked about this this week in our purity group. But uh, regarding Woodhand Stubble, you're referencing 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and noting uh, how do we make sure we're not uh, doing that. Well, uh, I think it would tell us, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, this is kind of the prologue to Paul's letter as a whole, where he's getting into the Corinthians and their issues with philosophy and their misunderstanding of what's really important within God. So he moves to this idea of... Sec uh, the problem with sectarianism, the problem with picking one teacher over the others, and he's pointing out their carnal behaviors. Then he moves on and he says this. <clears throat> this is verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can one lay than that which is laid, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this precious foundation with gold, silver, or other precious stones, uh, wood, hay, straw, and stubble, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as through the fire. So he's actually referencing two things, and they're both equally important. We can't miss either one. The first one is what kind of work I'm doing, and then the second one is what is my motivation behind that work? And actually, that's the, that's the more emphatic point that he is making, is the motive behind the work. So when he talks about laying a foundation of Christ, what he's saying is the type of reward that we're going to receive from God, it's not just in what we would call specifically ministerial vocations, right? So it's you not just... get rewards in heaven just because you're a pastor. That's it right. Be anything you do is unto Christ. That's right. That's right. So it's not just church planters or pastors or anything like that. It is anyone who is working out their goodness before God. So in other words, anyone who is glorifying God 
in seeking to make their character more conform to the foundation that Christ has laid inside of your life, that Jesus has given you a new life, and that life is founded in him through his love, through his goodness, not through anything that you've earned or merited. Now, the more you're able to, using Paul's language, work out that salvation, the more you're able to bring that character to the forefront of what God has put in you, and that means fighting your sin, going against the things that cause you to stumble, and investing in the relationships that God has given you. So some of that could be uh, evangelistic, meaning that I'm cultivating new relationships built upon sharing the gospel, or it's just preserving, maintaining, and growing and cultivating the relationships I already have, right? Taking good care of them. And by the way, that is the more important thing. There are uh, many passages in the Bible that suggest that people who do not provide for their own home are worse than non-believers. So it's like, yeah, if you're going out and you're evangelizing every day, that's great. But if your wife and kids are at home and they don't know who they are, I mean, they don't know who you are because you're spending all your time outside the home, you haven't done God's work, right? You, you may think that you're doing God's work, but you're really not. You need to focus on the relationships that are at hand, right? So there's a foundation that is Christ. You're building upon that with the works that reflect God and his attitude in his heart. And that is what you are being rewarded for. Now, the motive is equally important. I am doing this not to enrich myself, not to ingratiate my position. I am doing this simply because I love God, right? I'm doing this as an act of worship and devotion to him, not because I just want my name on some sort of a building or on some sort of a channel on online or something like that. I'm not trying to promote myself. I'm trying to promote God's word. That's my aim. That's my focus. And Paul says, everyone's works will be revealed at the time, right? When we go stand before God. Now, the reason why he said that, this is very important, is because he's saying it's wrong for me to impute motive to people I don't like. Right? It's wrong for me to look at other pastors and be like, oh, they're just doing that because they're selfish. They just want uh, you know, all this kind of applauds and accolades. And stuff. That's why they're, that's inappropriate for me to say. I don't know what their heart is. Maybe it looks like that, but maybe it's not actually the case. So he's warning about judging people unnecessarily, but he's also warning about what are you investing in and what heart are you investing with. So, and an example of that would be in Second Peter chapter one and verse five, and this is basically the summation of the Christian life. Wherever you find yourself and whatever you are doing, this is how that's examined. But for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. We all start with <coughs> virtue. To virtue, knowledge. So not just doing the right thing, but knowing why it's the right thing. To knowledge, self-control. Not just knowing what the right thing is, but letting that impact the things you do in life, or in this case, don't do. To self-control, perseverance, the Galatians 6 scenario, not growing weary and doing good. Then continuing on with perseverance, godliness, starting to act like God, making him your priority. To godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, so they aren't just there, but they continue to propagate in your life, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful. That's the key. In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he lacks these things as short-sighted even to blindness and has even forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. And then goes on to note, be diligent in this. When we're asking the question, okay, I'm saved, now what? This is the answer. I want to start storing up rewards in heaven. And again, as Peter stated, when we're asked what we'll be rewarded for, it's not just what we do, but why we do it. And if we're going to be honest, if we ask even the good things that we do in this life, did I do them for the right reason? 
No, because I'm doing them. And somehow my pride or my greed or my selfish inclinations are always going to get their greasy little paws on everything. So how do we avoid that? Well, Ezekiel, it's pretty simple. Ask. You have not because you ask not. If you want the right heart, ask for it. If you want right opportunities, ask for them. If you want to be able to communicate, like we did at this program, God's heart, give him the chance. I don't think you come to God and say, hey, God, can you uh, communicate your word effectively in this situation? Is he going to go, no? That's what we can always assume. But if, on the other hand, we ask the question, you know, God, why aren't you blessing every mistake I've made in my life, turning it into something that I could deem as good? Well, A, because you're not the priority here as to who's ultimately going to be glorified through your life, and B, you're not the one who sets those kinds of rules and prerogatives for him. So this is what we ultimately do when we take a step back and ask, what is the difference between the gold and the grain? What's the difference between the worthless and the worthwhile? The answer is Jesus, and if he's the one living out your life, then that is what will be rewarded. If not, well, that's what will be removed, and fortunately, and that being the case, that would make heaven miserable if there was less of Jesus in it. That's the whole point. But note, Ezekiel, that's what we're trying to do more and more of every day. Be more like Jesus in our character, and he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That is that work. I I would like to just make one clarification point as well. You uh, alluded to the passage in 1 Corinthians 3 that I read, but you also alluded to the parable of the talents. You got to be very careful there, because clearly the person who buried their talent gets sent to some sort of a torment and punishment might be hell. (laughs) It sounds a lot like hell. So we have to realize that whatever that guy did is not what's happening in 1 Corinthians 3, because if you notice what Paul says, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So this is an individual that they're investing in maybe some wrong things. They have wrong motives, or they're investing in things that don't really matter as much. They don't have eternal significance. And because of that, they're going to... uh, suffer through fire, meaning that those things are going to burn up. They're not going to have any eternal significance. Purgatory, right? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to just lose them. It's, it's like, oh, yeah, I did it. That was great. And now it's, now it's over. Now that's gone. But the things that you do for the right reasons and for uh, the right things for the right reasons, those things will have eternal significance, which is very beautiful. So again, be very careful with that, Ezekiel, that the talent parable is definitely communicating something different than what Paul is communicating, but you could the one overlap you could have is that with what God has given you, are you being faithful? But, yeah, and yeah. you'll be rewarded. Um, here's a question from Claudio, who uh, is objecting to the Trinity, so we're dealing with a other-than-believer. Let's make sure we clarify that. But they would make the claim that, of course, this Trinity doctrine was unknown to Jesus. No third helper or God person exists. Okay, so the objection isn't to the deity of Christ or the deity of the Father. The objection is to the Holy Spirit being deity. It was not understood, this is him, that the Holy Spirit is none other than the Father, who is, quote, a spirit. God is a spirit, John 4, 23 through 24. You can figure it out from the verse on the two blasphemies, where, quote, that spirit who is the Father is called Holy Spirit by Jesus. Only the Father who is a spirit, a.k.a. Holy Spirit, is with Jesus. So, applying our rhetoric here, the claim is the Holy Spirit is in reference to the Father, because according to John chapter 4 and verse 23, and it's good he gave verse citation for this, so he regards Scripture, that God is Spirit. 
and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus speaking, making a reference to God, says God is spirit. Since he is flesh, he's obviously referring to the other person of, I guess, his Claudia's dual entity. <laughs> that, uh, that is, Binity. of course, God. Yeah, Benity, <laughs> that would be it. But um, utter denial of the Holy Spirit as God, that the Trinity is a, quote, conventional doctrine, that it doesn't exist. So... Um, we can deal with this point by point. I reached out to Claudio, for those of you listening, to clarify what he meant by the passage of the two blasphemies. I don't know what that is. But uh, regarding our reasons for the Holy Spirit being distinct from the Father and the Son, what would, first of all, the Trinity mean? And then we'll go from there. Why do we think the Holy Spirit's a part of that and is, in fact, a person, as opposed to, as Jehovah's Witnesses would claim, an active force, or as uh, Unitarians would say, just, you know, God acting in another way? Yeah, no, it's a, it is an interesting question, and it is uh, a much more difficult contention than people who point out that, I mean, or try to point out that Jesus is never called God within the New Testament, which is actually very easy to prove. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the most humble <laughs> member of the Trinity. His job, his mission, is actually to reveal or make known or clarify the existence of the Son and the Father. So you'd expect him to be a little bit more uh, anonymous within the Scriptures. And sometimes, actually, when you're reading the Scriptures, you could just kind of pass over the instances in which the Holy Spirit is singled out, that it is him doing something as opposed to the Father or the Son. Uh, and I'll point out a couple of those right now. But essentially what the doctrine of the Trinity is, is that we as Christians believe in one single God. We are monotheists, right? So fact number one, how many gods are there? If you say there's a being out there rightly referred to as God, the <coughs> ultimate power, that would numerically amount to... One. one. All right, so first fundamental doctrine of the Trinity. There is one God. Right. Not three, not ten, <laughs> right. one. Just one God. And that one God, since he created all time, matter, and space, is spirit. So you are right about that. God, to his essence and his nature, would have to be spiritual because he couldn't be material. He created all of matter, time, and space, right? You have to be made of the things you invented. Right. That <laughs> it doesn't make much sense. So God so. would obviously have to be separate from his creative work. Therefore, he is spiritual. That's the word we have for it, an immaterial, pure conscious being that is able to create through his spoken word, right? There, there are things that only God can truthfully say about himself. That's right. So now within that one being of God, we say that there are multiple consciousness within that. So you could say multiple persons or multiple centers of consciousness. Uh, there are various ways that people allude to it. But regardless, what we're saying is we're making a distinction between what we would call being and personhood, right? So a being is just any being, right? I could point out, I could say like, well, cats are a type of being, dogs are a type of being, grasshoppers are a type of being, and that humans... what they are. That's right. Humans are a type of being. But only a, a weirdo would say that a cricket is a person, right? It is a being, true, no one's going to dispute you on that. It is a living being, as a matter of fact, but it is not a person. It doesn't have rights of a person. Its consciousness is much far below what a human being is capable of, right? It, it's just not going to be rise to the level of what we would call personhood. It's a being, but it's not a person. And right? even if you go to like Hopper from The Bug's Life, that is one being with one person. Right. The person is who they are, right. their identity. That's right. So that that identity or that singularity of consciousness, that uniqueness of being that we're talking about, that's what we ascribe to as person, right? So that's a person. So what am I? I am a human being 
Who am I? I am Peter. That's the person I am. Not the same thing. So if we say God is one in being and three in being, that'd be a problem. If we say right. one in person, three in person, that's a problem. If we say one in being, three in person, those are two different categories. It's unique, right? but it's not illogical. That's right. So because God is created in a very unique way, we don't see He's that. He's not created. <laughs> God's not created. No, no, no. Since God has created. Okay. Right? Since God has created in a very particular Heresy way. Check. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that means that we don't really see things on this plane of existence that mimic God. So in our way of thinking, in our reality, there are no beings that are comprised of multiple persons, right? Uh, some people would be like, well, it's kind of like multiple personality disorder. No, no, it's not. Right? No, it's not. It's actually nothing like that. Right? So... It is something that is really unique, and we take it on faith. So Christians have utilized the word Trinity to compound or to crystallize or to focus this really complicated center of theology that we have come to that conclusion through the reading of texts of Scripture, right? So, uh, and by the way, this is just how the Bible is written. The Bible doesn't have really clear, definitive places where it just lays out long doctrines of theology. The Bible has theology sprinkled through it, and you have to read the whole thing and put it together and figure out how these things harmonize before you can come to a conclusion, right? So all these things that I'm saying, there are dozens and dozens of passages backing up what I'm saying, right? There's no one passage that says, and God is one in being and three in person. No, <laughs> these we, are the, that would be nice, but that's not how the Bible is organized for us, right? That's not I have how to, we come up with anything we believe from the Bible. We right. get a series of true statements and come to a conclusion based on them. The term Trinity was a word used to describe what is obviously taking place there, but we have to come to that conclusion if we're saying that God is one and three. What sense? What way? Well, that's the whole point, why we make the distinction, because right. the Bible is very clear about monotheism, Deuteronomy mm -hmm. 6, 4, for example, and the New Testament affirms this as well, John 17, 3, for instance. But if on the era, I'll note that in a moment, but they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But if on the other hand we ask, okay, so Jesus then goes on to claim God's his Father, and at the same time that he has rights, that he has duties, that he has basically power that only belongs to that one true God. And on top of that, that he's going to send another, who by the way is not the Father, otherwise he could have just said that, who would also share those prerogatives. Right, so for this purpose, for this person that we're talking to, we actually don't need to prove the deity of the Son or the Father, because he hasn't yeah. contested them. So but all the we need to prove persons, yeah. is that there is a distinction of persons. So there are actually several passages that we can go to, as Sean alluded to one of them already, uh, where we could see that there is a distinction in persons, that the both the Father and the Son make these distinctions. There's one of my favorites, which is in the Old Testament, Isaiah 48, verse 16, which uh, I'm sure John would like to quote because I know he likes that one as well. Uh, but this Talk is, to Muslims a lot. <laughs> yeah, this is John chapter 14. <clears throat> and in John chapter 14, Jesus says, uh, verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that you he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them <clears throat> is he who loves me. 
and he who loves me will be loved by my father also, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Then a couple of verses later, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. And he who does not love me nor uh, does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but my father's who sent me. So we see a distinction of persons. Jesus mentions himself. Clearly, that's one person. And then he mentions the father. And then he claims that the father and the son are going to separate a uh, send another helper, right? And the word another, the preposition in Greek is actually really, really important. He's not just saying another as in something else. Another of a same kind, right? So we're talking about something that Jesus sees on his level, right? Not just like an angelic being or angelic presence. Beyond that, he sees that this singular helper will be able to manifest himself to all the people in the church, right? So he's praying that this singular member of the church, this singular person is going to be able to manifest himself to everyone who believes on God after Jesus has ascended to his Father. Beyond that, he believes that by having this person's presence in your life, it is tantamount to having the presence of the Father and the Son. This seems like a divine person to me. So very clearly in this passage, the Holy Spirit is separate and distinct, and the Holy Spirit is given attributes like omnipresence, right? He has to be able to manifest himself to all the followers of Jesus throughout the ages, and he is given the title of another helper, meaning he's on the level of Jesus, and Jesus is already deity. Beyond that, having the Holy Spirit is tantamount to having the Father and the Son in your life, which again is another divine attribute. So we have distinct person and divine in nature. And also note, we want to make sure in the complete witness of Scripture, what it's revealed in the uh, new is also, ironically, a reference to the old. And this is not something that Christians invented. This was not something that Jesus introduced, certainly clarified it a bit. But if you were to only have the Old Testament, which all the apostles did, they would have the same working information we have to understand what they spoke about. And in the book of Isaiah, chapter 48 and verse 16, I'll start in verse 12 so we know who's talking. We have God as if he is someone to be ordered around, someone who has an authority at least higher than him, if not equal to him, and also submitting to that authority. Now, in verse 12 of Isaiah 48, this is who is speaking. Listen to me, O Jacob, in Israel my called. I am. I am the first. I am also the last. Now, for those of you who are noting, that is a title exclusive to God, one that Jesus, by the way, claims for himself in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17. It's describing his eternal nature. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, this is creator, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. Jesus fulfilled that literally when calming the storm. All of you here, uh, all of you assemble yourselves in here. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon. His arm shall be against the Chaldeans. He's speaking of their return from exile. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have bought him, and his way will prosper. Come near to me and hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, and from the time that it was, I was there. So remember, God's repeating his eternal nature. I've been around a long time. In fact, I've been around since before time. I'm timeless. And then he goes on to say, and now, this is Isaiah 48, verse 16, the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. 
Now again, who is the me? Who is the object of this conversation? Well, someone who could claim for themselves, as we saw in 12 through 13, one who is creator, one who redeemed Israel, one who's the first and the last, so eternal, who claims that title for themselves, therefore the God of Israel. Yet the God of Israel is saying, God sent me. And not just God has sent me, but his spirit, distinguished from the Lord God, has sent God. <laughs> Keep track of this, and this is why we would come to these conclusions. But noting the Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament, is given divine, uh, excuse me, divine, divine <laughs> prerogatives, like Job chapter 33 and verse 4, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, and plenty others. He's called creator, he's called the maintainer and the introducer of life. We can go on, but the point of emphasis is this. If we deny the deity of the Holy Spirit, and we can also go into the New Testament for this as well, he's addressed as a person in Acts chapter 5, where in verses 2 through 3, he can be lied to and is called God by the Apostle Peter, not wrongly. We can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and noting that he knows everything. Who knows the deep things of God except the Spirit of God? We can note Jesus again in John chapter 16, noting all things the Father has are mine, and I will give them to the one I'm sending. Notice, not back to the Father, to the one I'm sending. So, all, and again, my summation, but read the passage. The point being made is this. We come to the conclusion of the Trinity not because it's conventional, not because it's convenient, not because it's unique, because it is the only conclusion you can come to given the full revelation of Scripture. We encourage further conversation about this, and I hope that this is something that we can talk about agreeably. But again, if not, then understand whatever God you're worshiping, we don't believe in a bi-entity. The bi-entity can't save you because he's not there. So make sure that that is a priority, and for all of you listening, think through these things as well, because of all the cult groups out there, they will challenge this one the most. We need to understand these things because it is just that important. We don't want to worship a fake God. Um, there's a question from Yari, I think. I'll read the comment, and we'll see if we can find a question here. Is the opposite true? I oh, he actually he has a question above that that I was looking at. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> we'll scroll through this and eventually get this sorted out. And actually, I, I know what he's asking. Okay, go too. ahead, because <laughs> I'm still translating. Okay, uh, so the first question, that Yari, Yari actually has three questions, and we'll try to get them in successive order. Uh, <clears throat> the first one actually has to do with what uh, we were talking about at the beginning, where I made the comment that it's possible for a husband to be evangelizing to other people, but not be a father and a husband at the home. Right, so I'm I'm out there and I'm doing God's work, but I'm neglecting the people that God has put in nearest proximity to me, and I'm calling that righteousness. Now, uh, I said that that's obviously not righteousness. You need to take care of your home and those in your household more than anyone else. That's why God has you there. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter three. That's what he's referencing. That's right. So, is the the question that Yara is asking is is the opposite true? Meaning, can someone be really really devoted to their wife and their family yet neglect the call of any other type of ministry in their life and be okay. Now, the way I would answer that is I would say, like, obviously that's your first priority, 
But just because you have a priority doesn't mean you can negate all other priorities in your life, right? It's important to order yourself to say, my primary focus is to my wife and my family, but that doesn't mean that I have no responsibilities to the world as a whole, right? So if I neglect going out there and sharing my faith at all, right? I'm just like, I'm just never going to tell anyone that I'm a Christian. I'm going to be kind of a incognito Christian at the house. And, you know, when I'm home, I'm going to be, uh, you know, the best Christian ever. But then when I leave the home, I'm going to act like everybody else and nothing about my life is distinctive. That would be hypocrisy, right? Now, it doesn't mean that everyone has the gift of what we call evangelism, right? The evangelistic gift is the the ability to just go up to people and talk about your faith uh, to strangers. I think that acting out your faith throughout the course of your life is going to manifest itself in your behaviors, and eventually, yeah, you're going to have to stand up for what you believe, because you're going to rub some people the wrong way. They're going to make comments to you. They're going to say things to you that are going to go against your morals, your values, and your ideals when it comes to your faith in God, and you're going to have to be able to defend yourself. Uh, I think that there is something wrong with hiding your faith in that really blatant way. Now, does that mean that you have... Uh, the question you might be asking is, is that a worse sin than the person who neglects their family? So if I'm taking care of my family, but I'm neglecting to be a minister outside the home, is that as bad as doing the opposite, being a minister outside the home, but not being a minister inside the home? Um, biblically, I, I, I would say you could make a case that neglecting your home is the worst sin, but you know, maybe just try not to do either. <laughs> you know, it's not a, it's not an either or proposition. Yeah, They're both bad. It doesn't follow to infer from the inverse. That's right. again not necessarily true. It's a form of an informal fallacy. That's right. But when we're talking about the actual issue at hand, again, you have to assume a lot because marriage is a ministry. Let's first and foremost state that. And if you're called to that, then fulfilling that is what God would call you to. If you're flexible, and if situations arise where you can be at a moment an evangelist, or at a moment a teacher, or at a moment just a decent person to someone other than your family, that's something God can call you to. That is a service as unto God. But if people say, well, you're a minister at home, yeah, that's your first priority, as you stated, Peter. But if on the other hand you'd say, well, shouldn't you be doing more? And the assumption is, I've been called to something other than this right now? I, I don't know that. You should obviously be available, but for someone to say, no, you're not a Christian unless you're also doing this. If you start at the family, God will call and equip you accordingly. It'll be very easy. But again, you have to assume that, that I'm isolating myself from any engagements or hostilities with people. That's not necessarily the case. Yeah, and, fact, by, and by the way, you know, speaking as a pastor, I'll tell you, this balance is not an easy one to manage, right? It, it, it's very, very difficult to manage your position of saying, like, I have these responsibilities as a pastor, as a minister to the body of Christ, but I also have these responsibilities to my home. And discovering this balance is a really, really difficult thing. And so what me and my wife have done since, uh, because I was actually a minister before I got married, is we would all, uh, we try to talk about my roles and responsibilities at the church, at least once a month, right? We sit down and we talk about, hey, these are the things that I'm doing. Is this too much of a strain on you? It, could I be doing more in the house? Uh, even just this last week we talked and she said, you know, I, I think I need a little bit more time. We're about to have our second child in a couple months. And she's like, I feel like I need a little bit more time just to myself. Can you be at the house for, you know, a couple hours on, on this day and allow me to, you know, go shopping, go hang out with my sisters or something like that. And you watch the kids. 
I'm like, yeah. So th- this is always a growing kind of balance that you're trying to uh, achieve in your home, but it only happens through dialogue with your partner. You have to be very clear about that. And then if you're in my position where you have no excuse, all your time is just spent here anyway. <laughs> That's another issue. So real quick, the, the other two questions that Yari asked, if you could pull them back up, uh, he asked about, uh, is it a good idea if my wife is also my best friend? Uh, so this I is from hope. Proverbs 31. It says, uh, who could find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. Uh, there are also various other passages, let's say in the Song of Solomon, where the Solomon, who presumably wrote the Song of Solomon, calls his wife, his prospective spouse, his sister, his wife. Um, this is a very dominant idea throughout the Scripture, because remember, marriage is a reflection of our relationship with Jesus, and Jesus is our husband, but he also calls his apostles friends, right? He calls his people, his church, his friend. So in order to mirror that type of relationship, that it not only has the passion and the intimacy that is reserved and exclusive for marriage, but it also has the kind of dependency, the joy, the ability to just kind of laugh and have a good time, the... uh, not only that, but to have the even-keeled views and directions and goals that friendships have. All those things are supposed to be inside of a marriage, and they have to be cultivated. So uh, some people start out a relationship. This is kind of like me and my wife. We started out as friends, so adding the romantic level to it was something that we added on. That was kind of interesting, right? Very amusing to watch. Right. And it is, by the way, even that is difficult. Some Christians will say, like, that's the way to do it. You got to be friends first, and then you date. I'll tell you from personal experience, it helped, but it is still a transition to go from being friends to being romantic partners, and there is a learning curve. Other people, they start out on a romantic context, meaning that they, you know, they see one another. They're like, wow, I have an attraction to this person. They ask them out. They go on a date. There's already a romantic context. They now have to cultivate not just a romantic context, but a friendship context. That's difficult, but here's the main point. They are achievable and they are aspirational. They're things that we should shoot for. Uh, You shouldn't look at your marriage. If you have a marriage with your wife and, you know, I've counseled people that have been married for uh, 20, 30 years, and this is usually like the older generation. The older generation did not put much emphasis on being friends with your partner. It was just like, hey, we're married. We have different roles within the home, and that's the importance. There's nothing wrong with that. But now they're realizing, like, oh, my gosh, we don't really have anything in common. Now, that's a bummer to realize after 30 or 40 years, but it is something that can be rectified, but only if you're willing to put in the time and attention. Because when you marry someone, unless you just... Uh, you just happen to marry someone that's exactly like you, which has its positives and negatives, you're going to have a lot of differing things that you want to do. You're going to have a lot of differing opinions. You're going to have a lot of differing goals. And you're going to have a lot of differing things that entertain and amuse you. You're going to have to learn how to find that common ground. And that takes a lot of will. And it takes a lot of compromise. It takes you stepping outside of your comfort zone and learning to appreciate what your partner has. Now, the... uh, the final question that you already asked, I can't remember what was it. Uh, pull it up real quick one more time. Uh, he asks, thanks, what is the biblical way I kind of don't want to be the head because that makes me feel domineering? Okay, so the idea of the husband being the head of the marriage. What would you say to a man that says, like, I don't really want to do that? You know, that I, I, this is not my personality. It's not my temperament. I don't want to do that. Okay, on a dial from... 
blunt man-to-man conversation. Or on the other hand, I'd probably crank it all the way up to 10. I'd say tough, do what God called you to do. But if I were to be more uh, diplomatic about the conversation, I'd say, look, if you're not called to that kind of ministry right now, then obviously God's not going to be developing your heart in that direction. Don't pursue a calling you don't have. Uh, people who are called to be evangelists don't have to necessarily worry about preparing sermons. They just say, you know, I know how to talk to people when I address them. I'm not going to be giving these pre-memorized speeches at them. I'm not going to talk at them. I'm going to talk to them. But if on the other hand, a pastor is going to be speaking to an audience, he's not going to do crowd work like a comedian. It would be very disjointed and against First Corinthians. 14 if you were to do that. So if you're not called to be married, don't think that because your mindset doesn't reflect a godly husband right now, before you're in that calling or in that ministry, that you are somehow not called to it. You're not equipped for it. If you have a calling, God will, where he guides, he provides. So regarding the perspective of being domineering, again, that's something that culture infers more into a leadership role than something else. If we were to take the reverse stat and basically follow the modern entertainment Disney slogan, it's okay if women do it. Every single trait they would uh, demonize for a man, they show in women, and it's suddenly fine that way. Be careful to that, because culture can influence and skew your view of reality. If on the other hand you're saying, okay, God, what is proper leadership, Mm. what would be a way to model your heart to a woman as the head, but in a way where it's how you do it rather than how I don't want to do it. Again, ask, pray, say, if I'm called to this ministry, God, can you make me a husband the way you intended a husband to be, to model your heart and character? Because if you say, you know, I kind of like the wife's role, it's basically like the contractor saying, you know, I'd rather be the foreman. Well, this is your field, this is your education, this is your calling, stick to that. If you read First or First Corinthians, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 28, it goes through those details, that expectation of God on both of the gender roles, and saying, well, I like the women's role. Well, you're not a woman. If on the other hand you'd say, so I'm not supposed to submit to Christ? Well, yeah, but understand the role in the marriage is not modeled that way. If we, on the other hand, say, okay, so given what I do know about my relationship with God and the calling I have right now, You and I are, as uh, another member of our fellowship says, single Pringles, so get comfortable in the can. If, on the other hand, you're in a married situation, you say, I don't like being a husband, then back to dialing it up to 10, tough. Fill in the role that God's called you to. That would be, of course, uh, that sort of blunt instrument in saying, look, you talk to a man, he's going to treat you like a man. Have that expectation. But if, on the other hand, you're just saying, I don't feel called to that, I'll repeat my point. Don't expect to be equipped for it. That would be my answer. Yeah, so um, one important thing that I would add to that is, uh, as you said, Sean, there is an obligation that we have towards God, and that obligation is detailed within our gender. So like it or not, when you get married as a man, you are the head of the relationship, right? So if you get appointed to a position of power and your first move in that position is to give up power, you still did that as the head, right? So if you become, like, let's say someone gets elected to the presidency or something like that. And they're like, you know what? I don't really want to lead. That's kind of an ugly domineering position. I don't want to do that. That is still you functioning in that leadership role. And a lack of leadership within a leader is something that's far more destructive than even a bad leader. So there are husbands that negate this role. They say, I'm not going to lead my home. I'm, that just seems too domineering. That's not within my temperament. That's fine. But you understand 
not leading is a form of leadership and it's a bad form of leadership. So no matter what you no matter what you do, no matter what you choose to do within a marriage, if you're the husband, you are the head of the home. And you can you only have one of two choices. Either you're going to be a good leader or a poor one. So if you are wanting to be married and you want to go into that role, then it behooves you, right? It makes a lot of sense for you to learn what good leadership looks like and try to implement that. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, it says, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also partaker of the glory that would be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Right? So what does this leadership look like? It doesn't look like me causing fear in my wife or trying to dominate her because I always know best. It's, it looks like me seeing myself on her level, taking my leadership as a gift and a grace from God, so not lording it over her or seeing myself as superior to her, because again, we're acting out the Trinitarian doctrine. I am acting in the position of the Father, and she is acting in the position of the Son. We're both, that there's that equality, just as God is God, but there is a hierarchy within the Trinity that we're reflecting in our dynamic and our relationship. So I want to be a good exemplar of that type of Trinitarian doctrine. That is something that's incumbent on me. I need to treat her well, I need to value her opinion, and I need to, most importantly, and I always tell this to men, don't be an example in word, be an example in behavior, right? If you want your wife to behave in a particular way, act it out for her and exemplify the Christian walk so that she can know what it means to follow God. Don't just lord it over to her and dictate to her what she's supposed to do without you yourself following through. That's a bad leader. Uh, one final thing I'll say is if you have a temperament that's more shy and you don't like being confrontational or you don't like asserting yourself, that is something that is difficult to deal with, right? You might have more of a codependent bend or temperamental bend, and that's something that you're gonna have to work through. And I would encourage you, whatever woman you're with, you're gonna have to make sure that she's not someone who's going to take advantage of that. You're gonna have to talk to her and be like, hey, it's hard for me to get forth my point. Will you work with me? Will you be patient with me? Uh, otherwise, she'll just bulldoze you. So, <laughs> yeah, no uh, uh, Athaliahs or Jezebels. The <clears throat> last thing I'll note, and again, it's kind of a segue from the first of five points here, but again, just to clarify one more thing as the music's going on, you said the father role for the husband, the wife is the son, the spirit is God. Note that a threefold cord, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, is not easily broken. That needs to be the foundation and guiding principle for your relationships. And if you're not in a marital relationship, then default to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 2. Love the younger women as sisters with all purity. You're allowed to be friends too, not necessarily wives. Thank you all for listening. We look forward to talking to you all again tomorrow. Till then, God bless you. See you all then. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.